women in education. For me, it's one of the most naturally free-flowing phrases that I can think of. Women have been educating humans before they drew their first breath until they draw their last breath. They've been vital, intricate parts to the educational system, both professionally and personally. I think it's an appreciation episode that we're going to have today where we can see how much of an impact that they have had from the early, early days of education to modern day educational systems. Joining me today are four fantastic educational professionals that have a range of experiences and have done a range of jobs in the education field. So please take your time, sit back, relax and enjoy because what they're going to give you today is worth every, every second of listening. So let's go. And today on Voices, this episode excites me the most because I love education. I've been a teacher for, for a little while now, and I wanted to have a conversation focused on women in education, not because, because of, you, I don't understand women because I'm a man, but because the, vi the vitalness of who women are in education, the nurturing nature and absolute intelligence that women have is important to understand where they are coming from and how they focus and teach classes and manage an education. So today I have four wonderful ladies joining me and no person can introduce themselves better than themselves. So I'll have Anna, Courtney, Jenna, and then Judy introduce themselves and then we'll, we will begin the conversation. So thank you ladies. Hey guys, I'm Anna Chekai. I'm from North Carolina. This is my 15th year um, teaching um, in Gaston County Schools. Um, I was also an instructional technology facilitator for three years and then went back to the classroom. Um, I graduated from UNC Charlotte with my undergraduate in history and then got my uh, teaching certification through the RAUC, which is the Regional Alternative Licensure Center, and then got my master's degree in instructional technology from Appalachian State University. I'm currently teaching seventh grade science, social studies, and world history. Thank you, Anna. And Courtney? Um, hi, everyone. My name is Courtney Armstrong. Um, I'm in my 13th year in education. I also went to UNC Charlotte, and I started out um, as a French teacher. I taught that for about six and a half years and then I transitioned over um, to become an academic facilitator. Um, I'm an academic facilitator at one of the local middle schools and I'm currently um, attending Queens University and I'm serving as a principal intern. Awesome and Jenna? Hey everybody, I'm Jenna Harbour. Um, I am a teacher in North Carolina. It is my second year teaching. I have taught third grade both years, um, but I have been in different counties. I started in Pitt County and now I'm working in Wake County. Um, I graduated from East Carolina University where I of course studied elementary education and concentrated in science, elementary science. Thank you, and Judy. 
Hey everybody, I think I'm the old lady of the room. Uh, my name is Judy Moore. Uh, I am currently in my 23rd year in education, I believe. Um, I am a building level administrator. I've worked at um, pretty much all levels. I've been a high school principal, a high school assistant principal. I was a high school teacher. Um, I've also been a principal of a middle school, an alternative school, and now I'm principal of a K-8 charter school uh, just outside Tampa, Florida. Um, I graduated with a degree like Anna in history from uh, North Carolina State University. I got my master's in school administration from UNC Charlotte, and I got my doctorate in ed leadership from Northeastern University in Boston. So as you can see, we have the, the full gamut, so we definitely can answer all the questions. Shout out to history majors. I'll just leave that there. So <laughs> anyways, uh, first question. So education is, is a constantly evolving uh, uh, field. And it's, in my opinion, it's been more reactive than uh, proactive in the last hundred years or so, or, or so. And what I've seen is there's been a primary shift from sort of men at the forefront to women uh, as the primary educators. So I'll start again with Judy, then Jenna, Courtney, and then Anna. Why do you think that shift happened from men to women? Well, see, and here's where you you get into that whole history thing. So Nick, you and I have, a, have some common ground there, but I don't think you can answer this question without, without thinking about the industrial revolution. For me, I don't know that education became, I don't know that it became so much of a secondary thing as much as the men went to the STEM fields or what we would call the STEM fields now, like a hundred years ago when, when industrialization became a thing. And I think it's almost like a, they pulled the men into those and it only left the women um, left over at the end when you know when I went to Mount Holly one of the things um, where I first met some of you I was in the vault because you know I'm a history major and Mount Holly had been there since the 40s and there used to be across the street from there the the um, I think I called it like a hermitage it's like it was like the teacherage where they the teachers actually lived um, and it was a building right behind where Rankin Elementary School is it's not even there anymore um, but that's where the teachers lived. But I found like a, um, I think it was like a faculty handbook from like 1920 something that was in the vault. Um, and it was all, you know, women, they, teachers could not be seen without their male escort husband, could only be seen with a male if it was your husband or your father or your brother. Yeah, it was really interesting. But for me, I really think the shift from men being the teachers to, to women being the teachers is more, in my opinion, because the men went out into industry and factories in, in what we would call STEM fields now, and it pretty much left the women at home to, to do the teaching of the kids. That's kind of where I think that started and sort of stayed that way. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, Jenna? Yeah, so definitely bouncing off um, kind of what Judy was saying. I feel like if you look at, you know, the past hundred years, that's a very large time span and, you know, stuff has changed. Our, our roles in society have changed, um, specifically when you look at men and women. Um, and so I definitely agree with Judy, how she is saying that men took um, those more industrious jobs and, and went on to kind of what they would see as bigger and better things. And, you know, as women were able to finally start joining the workforce, um, you know, women have the traditional role of mother and housekeeper and caregiver and I just uh, was speaking with some of my family about that and you know being a teacher especially an elementary teacher 
um, that's that's a job that really mirrors some of those traditional woman roles. And so I feel like that's a position that a woman, you know, in the past hundred years would have just easily slipped into, where the man um, kind of took those more, you know, boss kind of jobs, industrial jobs, um, better paying, more hands-on type stuff. That makes total sense. And Courtney? Um, I'm, actually, this was one of those that I really wanted to hear um, other people's opinions. So it's really good to hear those perspectives. Um, but one thing that just really sticks out to me um, as of late is that there has been such an emphasis on social emotional learning. And I believe that just the, the natural instinct um, of a lot of women, I can't speak for everyone, but of a lot of women, that ability to nurture, um, to meet those needs of nurturing first, um, have definitely allowed or um, have maybe attracted a lot of women into the teaching field. So we're kind of those people who are gonna meet you for who you are first and then grow you from there. Um, and so I, I really think that since education has developed over time to really, um, you know, just hit into what it means to really support a person for who they are. Um, that really has just allowed a lot of women to really just grow and prosper in the field. I totally agree. And Anna? Well, I think for the most part, everyone has um, answered kind of what I was going to say um, to begin with, with starting with the industrialization and um, when the men did go out to the field and then the nature of a lot of women being a nurturer um we've got to remember too that sometimes women are more soft-spoken and um well not all women but a lot of women are more soft-spoken and children tend to gravitate towards that more um than to someone that can be a little bit more harsh um, and i'm not saying that men are harsh it's just that men have um more um um i don't know sometimes we're not emotional i'm just gonna put that out there we're not you're right yeah not it's not an, an emotional type thing women do have lots wear lots of emotions on their sleeves and things and so children do t tend to gravitate towards that more I agree. You know, the interesting thing about it, Judy kind of brought it up at the beginning was, you know, I, I say 100 years, 100 years ago was 1920. And again, for all the history lovers, 1920 is when women got the right to vote. It was also like a very interesting time in, in, in the country because of sort of post war and all those things. So I think it actually leads to the next question really well, because there's there's a hierarchy or sort of segregation between uh, men and women. Uh, specifically on the infrastructure level, and I'm, I'm really glad that Judy is, is on this call specifically because she can speak to it as an administrator. And so what do you think, when do you think there was a slight shift where people started to see women more as leaders in education uh, as opposed to what was once existing? So we'll go Courtney, Judy, Anna, and then Jenna. You, you all kind of alluded to it a little bit is the fact that like it was a it's it, society has generally been a male dominated society and then when there was a shift around now a hundred years ago uh it moved where the hierarchy has generally been where men were in control of schools and school systems and so forth and now you see a shift where it wasn't that segregation as judy kind of alluded to where the women couldn't be out without the men and now you don't see that there's a shift 
where people are recognizing that's an issue and they're acknowledging women can be leaders and should be leaders in education. So what do you think was sort of the reasoning behind that? And uh, do you see the shift kind of moving forward? And again, uh, so just for order, Courtney, Judy, Anna, and then Jen. You know, I don't know if exactly I can say, you know, when the shift happened. But I think one thing that I have realized is that um, a lot of people in general have just realized what kind of leadership capabilities they have. Um, And for a lot of teachers, you know, uh, if they were women, and again, I don't want to speak generally, but if they were women, uh, maybe you thought that that was like the classroom was where your leadership um, abilities could, you know, really take root and grow. But I think with the um, with the onset of different leadership positions, like being facilitators, being coaches, um, you know, working with the district or what have you, um, that has opened up a lot more um, opportunities for anyone, but particularly women, to um, to embrace their leadership beyond just a classroom setting, um, and not not to say that the classroom setting is you know limiting. I mean that's a wonderful setting to show your leadership, but because there are other ways to express your leadership, it has allowed more people to kind of step out of just the classroom um, and to impact more communities. So again, I'm not sure as to when exactly the shift happened, but I do know um, when uh, in education when people started thinking about you know what exactly is our need to best support our children when um, that conversation or that that um, that challenge was brought to the table. It just allowed for more people to express themselves, express their their given gifts um, in other ways um, beyond just the classroom. Thank you so much. All right, and Judy. Well, I have kind of a, a different take on this. I, I would agree with you that that shift has started to happen in recently. I'm going to say just in the the lifetime of my career, in the 23 years I've been doing this, um, that that shift has been more tangible just since that time. Because I I mean, I can tell you as an administrator, and this is like year 14 for me uh, as an administrator, like even you saw women principals more in the elementary levels a lot earlier. But even when I first started uh, as as a principal back in like uh, 2006, I think is when I went to, to middle school. High school was still like, for lacking a better term, was still the old boys club. Um, and, and you'll see a lot of, high, if you're gonna find a lot of male principals, you're, not, you're gonna find them more in the high school secondary levels than you're gonna find them in the elementary levels for the most part. That is starting to change some. Um, like for example, when I was placed at, um, in, in the system that we worked at the high school that I was placed at the second high school that, that I was a, um, uh, a principal of, I was placed there in 2016. I was the first female principal that high school had ever had ever. It's 2016. Wow. How am I the first woman principal ever at Bessemer city high school until that happened? Um, and, and that was 2016. And I have kind of a thought for that because I've seen it over the course of the year. Uh, over the course of the years that men in the classroom, if you look at teachers, uh, at least over the the lifetime of my career, men were always more upwardly mobile. um, And I think this kind of gets back to some more gender roles. You can't support family on on a teacher's salary. 
like you you just can't like especially if you're going to have a, a large family or whatever that and it to me i saw over the course of the year i saw several um really amazing guy teachers that i had that were awesome that were great and most of them moved into an administrative upwardly mobile sort of path because the money like the the money was there and they, i don't know that it was so much for their leadership it was because they had a family to support and you really can't support a family on on a teacher's salary um whereas women if you want to talk strict gender roles, a lot of the times the women that, uh, I mean, I've got people that, that have worked for me over the years that didn't need to work um, because the husband did whatever. So they were perfectly content to stay in the classroom and do that nurturing thing with the, with the students and be that nurturer inside the four walls of their classroom. And they were great with it. And that was their comfort zone. And that's where they wanted to be. And they didn't really have any desire to move into a more of a leadership role. And on top of that, they didn't have a necessity for it either. I think over the course of the last you know, couple of decades, I've seen men that had more of a push for leadership because they had more of a push to be upwardly mobile, to, to increase their ability to support their family. I, I've seen that year in and year out with people. It's only really been in the last 10, 15 years that you're starting to see that shift where I looked around a, a high school principal meeting toward the end of the, my time working for that, um, that district. And we were about half and half at that point. When I was first placed as a principal, I was one of only two sitting in the room, uh, one of only two women sitting in the room of male high school principals. And that, has, that is shifting now. Um, but for me, I really think in, in some sense that, that men had more of an impetus to move up of, of their own more so than, than some of the women did. So I, that's kind of where I take that Okay, cool. And yeah, like the first yesterday, was, Monday was the first time I heard the, the phrase pink collar job in which some people classify uh, teaching as. And Anna? Well, I've noticed too that in, in my um, years of teaching, we were talking about um, the people that we had taught for, our principals that we have taught for. I've never taught for a male principal. All my principals have been females, but I've had male assistant principals. Um, but I feel like now women are more comfortable um, knowing that they can go into those p positions um, and be successful, that people will um, support them and, you know, that they can show and they, they will show that they're just as good at their administrative level jobs or county level jobs as men are. Um, and then being out of the classroom in a county level position that I was in for three years um, as a technology facilitator, there were seven or eight of us. I can't remember how exactly how many, but of that number, we had three males in the group. So, um, you know, it's women are, you know, starting to really understand, hey, I can do this and I'm going to do this now. Uh, great answer. And Jenna? Women are seen as the nurturers, um, stay at home, take care of the children, take care of the house. So when I think of those leadership positions and, you know, the gender roles that accompany them, um, I can't remember who exactly was saying it, but that, that comfortability um, for women to now kind of step up um, into that leadership position um, and realize that it is a place for a woman to be um, and it doesn't have to just be a male-dominated field. But I also see kind of the pressure for women to stay in a classroom um, because I feel like 
um, and even in just my two years of teaching, it is a very, um, like you said, pink collar job. Um, a lot of women are classroom teachers, and I feel like there is a lot of pressure on women to stay where we are at in the classroom because uh, it's what we're good at. It's what uh, it's what's comfortable to us. It's it's what's natural to us. So I'm kind of on 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 both sides of it, you know, where where my mind is being pulled. I think that women finally are being more comfortable stepping up to that leadership position and putting their feet out there and um, doing the big job of uh, managing. So, uh, the, I think this is an important question. Do you, you remember your first year of teaching and what did you do to help you make it to the second? And what were some of the challenges in your first that you remember that you wanted to overcome to go into the second? So we'll have Jenna, Anna, Judy, and Courtney answer in that order. Yeah, so like I said at the beginning during my introduction, I am only a second year teacher, so um, I'm very fresh to the teaching scene. Um, my first year was just last year, um, and it was in Pitt County. I'm gonna preface um, my answer by saying a few things. I was working in Pitt County, um, I was working at a restart title one school um, where more than 75% of students um, were free or reduced lunch very very low um, um, household incomes and just a lot of stuff that children were dealing with at home so my first year of teaching was a struggle um, we think about schools like that um, a title one a restart school basically means the school was failing and had to be taken over by the state and had to meet criteria A, B, C, and D and be checked over by the county many, many times a week and be, um, teachers were being looked over so much and just the stress on working at a Title I restart school is high, even for, in my opinion, a 20-year teacher. So being a first-year teacher, still trying to learn the ways of teaching um, and, and working in that environment was tough. Now. I say that because it, it, it did kind of alter my feelings about teaching a little bit my first year. Um, I did know what I was getting into because I was a long-term sub at that school before I took on a full-time position there. Um, I, I knew the personalities of those children. I knew the needs of those children. I, I knew the pressure coming at me from the county. I had behavior issues galore, you know, people bringing drugs and weapons, um, fights, so much different stuff. To help me get through a year like that, um, I really had to hold on to my colleagues at the school and my friends and my mentor and, and my support. Um, I'm not sure about you guys, but my first year of teaching, of course, is very fresh on my brain. You don't know what you're doing. You really don't know what you're doing. Um, you go to college and, and you learn the foundations of teaching. You don't learn how to be a teacher, and I always say that. So learning how to be a teacher with all of that adversity right at my neck was really difficult. And having the support of my colleagues that had been working at that school for years and, and just hearing that they understood. I mean, I would go home and cry almost every day um, from either not feeling accomplished, um, teaching them academically or something a student had said to me or thinking about a student's home life. It was really difficult. So holding on to my colleagues and understanding that they were going through the same stuff um, was really helpful to me. Um, and now, like I said, I work in Wake County, which is one of the largest um, in North Carolina. I work um, at a school that's situated between two million dollar neighborhoods and, and it's just a, such a different environment. Um, but 
kind of thinking about the struggles my first year, I think a lot of the struggles that came from my first year of teaching had to do with the fact that it was a restart. Title I school, um, like I said, the county um, had to. I understood it. County has to check over everything you did. I submitted my lesson plans every single week. Um, superintendent and everything was in my classroom uh, at least once a week looking at, you know, stuff that to them mattered, to education matters, to state matters, such as my word walls, my anchor charts, my this, my that. But the biggest thing that was a struggle to me that I didn't understand, that I don't understand now why it was a struggle is trying to comply with all of those checklists that, that the county was pushing on us. Um, because being in a classroom with those type of students, I learned very quickly, their needs are not a word wall on the back of my room. Their needs are not an anchor chart with multiplication and division strategies on it. Their basic needs are, are stuff that isn't being met at home, being nurtured, being loved, being fed, being cared for, being supported. And so it was really a struggle for me to comply with everything the county was asking me to do and, and also um, give those students the first thing that they needed. Um, I'm a firm believer that if students don't have that foundation, that love, that support, that caring, the last thing on their mind is learning. They're hungry, they're tired, they're going through so much at home, and it was just a struggle for me to keep up with what the county was expecting from us as, as uh, educators in a Title I Restart school, but also meeting the needs of all of my children and not being completely overwhelmed. And now working in Wake County, um, they are very, uh, it's very straightforward what they expect. Our lessons are, um, our math lessons are done for us in the curriculum. We follow an ELA program that's very mapped out. It's very relaxed. Um, they know that these students are, are in a system, are, are in an environment where most of them are supported and, and their parents do understand the um, importance of education and it's supported at home. And so I don't understand how my first, I mean, I do understand, but it's crazy to me how my first year was such a struggle to meet the needs and, and the requirements of the county where this year it's like a breeze for me. I'm like, this is great. <laughs> so that's kind of my first year of teaching it was definitely a struggle, uh, a big learning curve for me. And um, at times I really thought, what am I doing? Why did I decide to do this? But then, you know, looking back at it now that I'm not in the middle of that stress, it really built me up as a person and as an educator for my first year to be in, in a school that was um, so underprivileged. Okay. And Anna, because I know Anna has a sort of different story as well, too. So Anna, how, how, your first year. Um, well, I would have to say my first year, I, I actually loved my first year of teaching. Um, my first full year of teaching, I um, worked for Judy. Um, and then Lori Collins was my teammate and Lynn Myers and, um, Lori taught me a lot. Um, she was always giving me, um, ideas anytime I would be able to go to her, um, and say, Hey, Lori, what about this? Or this happened? How can I make it better? Um, she was such an inspiration to me, um, in my first year of teaching. Um, and it did kind of help too that my mother was an educator um, and she's actually retiring this year. Um, so I was able to, I had a lot of people around me that I could trust 
uh, to say, you know, this totally bombed, you know, what can I do? You know, why do you think it bombed and why, why did this go well, but this lesson didn't? Um, there were times when I was afraid of things that went on, um, but I would have to say for the most part, my first year and even the first couple of years were my favorites of teaching. Um, my students at the time, which Jenna was one of them, um, they were all so respectful of us. Um, they they wanted to do the do good, do the right things. Even their parents were always um, checking in, and you know, what can I do to help, or do you need anything? Um, and it, it's just kind of shifted over the last couple of years. Um, to something totally different. But for me, my first year um, was one of my favorites and my best years. Well, congratulations to your mom. I love your mom. She was awesome. And then shout out to Lori Collins. Uh, I really got to get her on one of these. Judy, your turn. Well, I'm, I'm right there with Jenna. If you want to how I got through my first year of teaching, it might have involved copious amounts of alcohol. I'm not sure. <laughs> but they, <laughs> Um, the, and, and the funny thing is, is that her situation and mine were a lot alike. I was in Wake County. Um, I graduated from NC State University and I started, but I graduated early. So I graduated in December. Um, so there weren't a whole lot of teaching jobs. So I started out as a substitute. Um, and long story short, I was in a high school, uh, Title I high school, which I think has now been torn down and rebuilt. Um, but I think it's a magnet school now. So I uh, had about 2,100 students in it at the time, a staff of about 150. Um, I started there as a sub, um, just like working around Wake County to do sub jobs because I couldn't find a permanent one in the middle of the year. And then um, that sub job turned into a permanent job. Now that I'm on the other side of the desk, I know exactly what it was that happened um, after North Carolina um, populates their uh, their teaching rosters by what they call ADM or average daily membership. So basically, however many kids you have in your building is going to determine how many teaching allotments the state gives you. Um, and the and the state of North Carolina is a little different than a lot of the other states around the country in that it, as a principal, it's nice because I don't have to worry about how expensive a teacher is. I can hire a 30-year teacher or I can hire a first-year teacher. It doesn't matter. I can hire one teacher. It doesn't matter what they cost. The state's going to give me uh, an allotment for a teacher. Um, and not all states work that way. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's one thing that's really good about being an administrator in North Carolina. And the bottom line is, um, I was the fifth teacher that these kids had had all year long as high school classes. Um, and, and what it was is they were given an allotment after their 20th day, which is when North Carolina decides ADM. So they had more kids than they thought they were going to have. The state gave them another allotment. And they decided as an administrative team to put that allotment in the social studies department to lower their class sizes. But the way they went around building those classes, I could see all this clearly now because I'm on this side of the desk, um, was basically to go through everybody's class and ask them who they wanted to get rid of. So my first classes were nothing but the cast-offs that they, all the behavior issues from every other class all put in one place together. Um, wow. I, I was the, f uh, yeah, right. I was the fifth teacher they had had all year long because they ran off the first four. This was February. Well, nobody's going to run me off because like, I'm, that's just not going to happen. Like, <laughs> so I told them, um, I told them I would take the job, but I started, I'd been their substitute for two, three weeks. And then all of a sudden I walk in on a Monday and now I'm their teacher. So I have no legitimacy to begin with because they've only seen me as a sub for like the last two or three weeks. I'm 21, just turned 22 years old. Some of these kids are 19. 
Um, and so like literally I'm only about 18, 20 months older than some of the students that I'm teaching at this point. So it wasn't a good setup to begin with. Um, high poverty school, lots of needs, all that, all that same kind of stuff. So I, I pretty much went home and cried every night because it was, um, it was, it was survival. There was not a lot of instruction that went on, especially since, I mean, I went the traditional route. I had done student teaching. I'd done student teaching in, in White County. Um, I had an amazing, um, fantastic uh, cooperating teacher, Mike Ludwig, um, who, uh, he was, he was awesome. Like I, and, and I learned a lot from him, but what I didn't learn from him was classroom management because he didn't have any. He didn't have to, like his kids respected and loved him. And all he had to do was look at him sideways and they weren't going to mess up with me either. So I walked into that particular place knowing all kinds of things about how to build a great lesson and not a whole lot about how to manage a classroom. Um, and interestingly enough, as I've gone through my, my career, you know, the, one of the last schools that I worked at before I came, well, the last school I worked at in North Carolina before I came down to Florida was an alternative school. Um, you know, we're talking about an F school, you're talking about a restart school. This is an F school with, you know, serious issues in terms of, of student behavior, mental health issues, all the rest of that. And the only thing I really had in that building were first year teachers. You know, one of the things that, that is, that is, I think, an issue with education is that, it, you know, if you've got this really super difficult and you're a cardiologist and you've got this really super difficult, complicated heart surgery that's like really hard to do, like the, the doctor you're going to get to do that heart surgery is going to be the guy who's got the most experience and is the best guy out there, whoever, whoever, best guy, girl, whatever, whatever cardiologist has got the, the most experience and the most learning is the best person for that surgery is who's going to get it. It's completely flipped on its head in, in education. And the ones who get the hardest classes are the brand new teachers that don't have a clue what they're doing because like Jenna's not wrong. Like they don't, they, they teach you all the theory about how to teach in college, but they don't, you don't have the nuts and bolts to actually know how to do the job when you come out. It's really just, it's on the job training, but the new teachers get the toughest assignments. And I've seen that year after year after year and I think the only way you do get through that is with a supportive um, with a supportive family of teachers around you that a recognize it and b are helpful and, and are there to help you because your colleagues can either be the one to get you through like Lori Collins amazing amazing math teacher I've said that from the beginning that was a great team Anna that you talked about um, the the three of you together were an awesome team like but that team's either going to get you through or you're going to have that one teacher. We all know who they are. They have different names, call them whoever they want, but you all know who they are. Who's that <laughs> same one that's going to, that's going to tear you down or talk about you or act like a seventh grade, you know, boy or girl or whatever, and, and be the one to run you out of the profession. It really is the support of the people that you work with. That's either going to make or break you in that situation. Very true. I totally get it. I got to work with that team, so they were great for my first year. And Courtney. All right. So um, my first year of teaching was probably one of the most challenging years of my life. Um, I will not lie. Um, I recall actually losing 10 to 15 pounds that year because um, I wrote so many office referrals and did them during lunch, so I never ate lunch. Um, so it was a really tough year of my life. Um, I struggled a lot with classroom management and like, uh, what was shared, uh, previously, you know, I, I could build a, a pretty decent lesson. It just, it was how I, you know, interacted with my students and I learned, um, I would say that 
over time, um, what made teaching stick, what made me come back was number one, well, it's not really number one. Um, I was a teaching fellow, so I had to be in the classroom for four years, otherwise I had to pay back a scholarship. But in all honesty, um, what made me come back is because I really um, hitched on to an amazing mentor. And I cannot, um, I feel like everybody else, like having that PLC or just an amazing mentor who just really can show you the ropes and, and show you, um, like you said, Judy, the nuts and bolts of teaching, um, that instructional management piece um, really was the game changer. Um, I noticed that in my first year of teaching, I struggled with um, I would say a social intelligence in the sense of um, I really didn't know how to read students as well as I, I needed to. But the thing is, I learned how to do that over time. Um, and I had a mentor who really helped show me that. Um, so I would say that first year, I wish that I would have um, did a better job of building a really sturdy, sustainable relationships with students instead of being like this middle class girl who comes into um, a situation which was high poverty and just expecting everybody to just respect me. Um, I needed to do a better job of like, you know, meeting the human's needs, meeting our students' needs before, um, before you know, doing anything else. So that was, that was my biggest struggle, um, but I am very glad to say that I've learned a lot and you just get better. You know, Courtney, the interesting thing is I remember your first year because I came to visit you because we uh -huh. taught in the same place. <laughs> I remember that. I came to visit yeah. your classroom. I remember because we had different teacher work days and stuff. Right. And Judy it allowed us tough. to do work from home on certain teacher work days because she trusted us as teachers. It's just, it's just amazing, right? The, the good things okay so and those are really really great answers specifically dealing with the first year uh, of teaching and so i want to move to something that's connected to first year of teaching and continuing is respecting the classroom management is one of the most significant issues that teachers encounter in the k-12 through arena it's the thing that i think makes or breaks a teacher and so my thing is what's your take on classroom management today how has it changed over time and do you think men have it easier to manage classrooms. So I'll have you go Courtney, Judy, Anna, and then Jenna. Okay, um, so I would say that um, from what I know in regards to classroom management, there has been quite a shift. And I see the shift moving from, um, I remember when I was younger um, and just looking at all of my teachers, um, you know, teaching, like, whatever the teacher said, you did. There was no question asked. It was what it was. Um, and that was what was expected. Um, and I think someone shared earlier, uh, it was like, if, if I were to get in trouble at school, um, my mom might ask me, so what did you do? It was never really asking or questioning the teacher of their professional practice. Um, and there has been a shift along, along the way. And I have just noticed um, that now the shift, I would say, is very uh, relationship um, heavy in the sense of um, the respect in the classroom most definitely comes from how much you learn about your students. Uh, and how much you show that you care through instruction. Um, I would say in regards to, um, I think we were talking a little bit about, you, you know, do men get a, 
more respect in the classroom just simply because they're a man? I would say uh, not as, not really. Um, I've seen some, um, some, some instructional tragedies, if you will, um, when it comes to both women and men. Um, and, and it's honestly because I feel like kids want to know that they are being led by somebody who is, you know, who is caring, who is very um, nurturing. So they have, again, again, that social intelligence, that social competence. Um, but they're also wanting, and, and somebody who has their best interest at heart, um, also need somebody who is going to, you know, lay down the law. Um, and to that end, I feel like that is something that everybody um, in this day and age must come prepared into any classroom with. Um, otherwise, it is not going to be pretty, no matter if you are the burliest of a man um, or the softest of a woman, it doesn't matter. You must come in with this skill set in order to make sure that your classroom thrives. All right, and uh, Judy? You know, I've said for years, if I could figure out how to get people to teach kids and not teach subjects, um, I would retire and buy a small chain of islands in the Caribbean somewhere. <laughs> um, and, and that really ends up being more of a secondary thing because honestly, over the years, having worked K-12 now in, in administration, uh, teachers sort of reflect their, their students in some sense. Um, so the high school teachers especially um, are, I always ask that in an interview. And, and so to anybody listening, when somebody asks you, why do you want to be a, a teacher? If what comes out of your mouth next is, oh my gosh, I just love biology. I'm, I'm already done. Like I, that wasn't the answer I wanted. I want the answers that you love kids. Like if you come out with, I love biology, I love math. I just love physics. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. Like that's the, that's not, the, go teach in a college. Like that's not where you need to be. Um, because like relationships are everything so uh, and and they've been everything and the funny thing is is got this from my first year as a principal all the way back at Mount Holly with you Lou and and Anna um, with one of the teachers that was there and I've said this for years ever since when I said you know what that here's the key to classroom management and it's this one one sentence and and this is it that I like you know plant it in the ground and watch it grow um, students will do anything that you want them to do anything it doesn't matter who the kid is, where they're coming from, doesn't matter. They will do anything, and more to the point, their parents will do anything for you, provided there is one thing in place, and that is they think you like them, period. Because there was a teacher at Mount Holly, pretty sure didn't like half of her kids, but they all thought she did, and she was amazing at it. Like, she was one of my favorite teachers of all time, because she would come into to my office, and she would complain about kids that were driving her crazy or whatever, but those kids worshiped her they loved her because and the whole thing was they all thought she loved them and that was it and because I, I saw a kid all but throw himself on a table in between his mom and the teacher to defend the teacher in front of the mom um, because the bottom line was that he he thought that teacher just loved him more than more than anything and that's the key so you have to be able to build those relationships um, and if you can build those relationships authentically, so because kids are pretty smart, like they're going to see through whether or not you're just putting on an act. Like if they honestly believe that you care about them as a human being, I don't care what kind of kid it is. And the only schools until now that I've ever worked in have been high risk, um, high or low SES Title I type schools with kids with all of those background stories. And you can take the, the worst group of kids that I've ever had in terms of what their home life is like and, and what their situation is like and what they're walking into when they go home. 
and and it holds true for them too. They just want they want to know somebody cares and loves about them, loves them. And if, and if you're that person and you figured out how to do that, they will do anything for you. It doesn't matter who they who they are. Like that's the key to classroom management. All right, and Anna. Um, I think this is probably my favorite question of all of them because um, I am a firm believer that you have to build relationships before the learning um, will come. Um, and I've actually been in the, a situation the last couple of years where we've had several students that are on other teams and for some reason they gravitated towards me, um, which is perfectly fine. Um, but it, they did not, um, they, they felt like I liked them, which I genuinely did. They were not on my team, so they were not a behavior problem for me. Um, they were for the other teachers, but it came to the point where those other teachers were starting to send them to my classroom. And I always had an extra area in my classroom where, um, they would come and they would see it. They would even bring their work, their Chromebooks, their work, and they would sit there and they would be perfectly fine. Um, they would see me in the hall or see me out in public and say, you know, hey, Miss Checkeye, hey, you know, and things like that. Um, but I really feel like students need to know that you um, genuinely care about them. And then once they understand that and they know that you do care about them, it that their grades will start coming up. Um, I've had a, a good example this year with a student. Um, we switched her classes. She was in my third block class and then we switched her to a different class. The atmosphere was totally different. I was personally able to be um, different in that class because of behavior and things and her grade went from failing to um she's actually just passed with a 94 so um you know you you have to build those relationships and and let them know that you are there for them and that you're going to care that you do care about them and you're going to care for them i think it's amazing i just want to interject really quick before i let you go jenna is that i i anna and i have several projects we did with kids that we may or may not have particularly cared for on the highest level and they, those kids i know specifically loved Anna like I like I can think of Haley and just different kids and they just it's because of just you were who you were so I'm giving you kudos as a short interjection uh and Thank you. uh you're welcome and Jenna your turn you you probably have a, a different story specifically because you deal with uh, smaller children yeah so everyone's really said um a lot of what I was thinking you guys have such good answers um, but I really think kind of the shift in, in management behavior and respect in the classroom has kind of come from a shift um, in family dynamic and how uh, people view teaching um, so I like to think back you know many many years ago when my grandmother was in school um, you acted up at school you got a paddle you go home no questions asked you get another paddle um, and, and nowadays we have to tread so lightly with uh, our behavior management and our discipline and you know we and, and I don't disagree with this at all but we look so much to positive reinforcement um, rather than what used to happen years ago is you know you got very negative consequences I think that's kind of where the, the switch has occurred and 
you know, it used to be so many people would just listen to what the teacher said and take it for her was um, they would never question a teacher. And I feel like that's become such a common place is to question the teacher and say, you know, I feel like parents make a lot of excuses for things that are going on. And so um, I feel like a lot of children feel like they can get away with a lot more and it just makes it really tough in the classroom. Um, in regards to um, having the respect from the children, exactly what they are saying, you have to meet the child where they're at. Um, not every child is going to come into school happy. Not every child has a picture-perfect life. Not every child, um, you know, I even have third graders that deal with stuff that in my 23, almost 24 years of life, I've never dealt with. Um, and a lot of the times, that's where those behavior issues stem from. Um, they, they want that attention. They crave that attention that they're not getting. Um, when I worked at that Title I school last year, so many of those children, like I said, had so many behavior problems. And like Anna was saying, there are so many kids at that school that would gravitate towards me that weren't even mine, had huge behavior problems, just because I would be the ear to listen. I would be the shoulder to cry on. You know, their teacher was done with them at that point. But I would listen to what they had to say, I, I, you know, what's going on, not just why are you doing that, but what's going on, you know, you've got to meet the child where they are, not academically, I'm talking socially, I'm talking emotionally, you get that respect, you show them that you love and care about them, then they will in turn respect you, um, and, and you, you got to meet the child where they are at socially and emotionally to advance them academically. Um, kind of speaking on men versus women in respect, I feel like thinking about typical um, personality traits of a man and a woman, you know, men usually are seen to put their foot down more, be more stern, be more strict, um, not, pulled up, not put up with a lot of BS, whereas women are more nurturing and caring and forgiving and kind. So I think it is, a, it is what you make it. Um, you know, as a female teacher, you have to take on those personality traits of being stern. But I think that children when they first meet a teacher might think that they can get away with more from a woman simply because women their personality traits are what they generally and usually are and men they probably don't think they can get away with as much because men are more stern put their foot down and don't put up with as much um but as educators we all know that is that is not the truth um you man or woman you've got to have those really strong personality traits so I think that children might think that um, they're going to respect a man more um, and kind of fool around and mess around more in a woman's classroom. But as teachers, I think we all know that that is not the case. I, I, I think it's awesome. And another opportunity to interject Lori Collins. I just love Lori so much. She was she was super stern. And the thing that I found so amazing was so many kids who left the Lori Collins years later would come back and be like, man, why you don't teach math like Ms. Collins? They would say it in that, that exact way. And they forgot that she was a really stern lady because they remember what she taught, which meant that she had to control and create a culture. And I, just being abroad, I do want to interject something if you all want to answer this one just in sort of whatever way you want. One of the biggest issues I run into, uh, and I, I, I taught in the school uh, abroad, is culture is huge. Like if you don't understand the culture of the community of the school, it doesn't matter what kind of practices you have. If those practices don't go with cultural norms, I think that causes an issue. Uh, specifically because like Courtney would know, Courtney and I uh, worked in a, a program uh, through the Children's Defense Fund called Freedom School, where we were really with at-risk kids. And like uh, Courtney was at one site and I was at a different site in our second year and I was a site coordinator and just sort of seeing it from different levels. 
understanding the culture of where these kids come from means absolutely everything. So uh, did anyone want to like respond to that? It doesn't have to be in a specific order, but I just wanted to throw a quick injection there. Sure, I can jump in very quickly. Um, so yes, we did freedom schools um, several years ago. So we worked with the school to um, come up with ways to really bridge the gap between, um, again, home and school relations. Started kind of helping the teachers to um, teach parents how they can um, be a partner in education from the home front and what kind of effect that would have on um, the student both at home and in the classroom. So I really agree um, about that cultural piece. We wanted to just be like, let's do this, let's do that. And they're like, no, we can't because um, we don't have the, the parent um, partnerships that we want to have. So we had to scale back a little bit and hit it from exactly what their need point was. And then from there, we saw a lot of growth and I think you have to consider culture is, is also, it's a more consuming term than that. Like I, I haven't worked outside of, of the country, but for me, culture can also mean the culture of poverty um, and can mean the, the cultures just across the, across the U.S. in terms of, of how people are raised. And one of the things that you said, whether guys have it easier or girls have it easier, for me, I haven't noticed any I haven't noticed that men or women have classroom management any easier, but I have noticed that in individual cases as it relates to students and their backgrounds, that sometimes I've had to strategically schedule students that they've had nothing but male teachers because whatever it is that's gone on in their home life, they have no respect for women in authority, even their own mothers. Like I've seen that in, in my office with, with mothers and kids. I've even seen, and I've seen the flip side of that where they will not respond to male teachers and I've had to strategically schedule them so they didn't have a male teacher because of whatever it was that was going on in their home. So there's different cultures in terms of of even what's coming from family cultures that that again I think that those relationship pieces you're never going to get to what the real root causes are if you don't have that relationship with student to be able to to put together oh wait x y and z happened at home so he's probably not going to respond very well to a female teacher maybe we need to do this instead. Yeah and I agree with what you guys are saying um, like I've said the first year was in that title one very very high poverty very low, if any, parent involvement, and I am now working uh, in a school situated between two million dollar neighborhoods. Parents are very, very, very involved. Um, there are pros and cons to both. The culture of, of the community of the students is night and day, I will say that. I've had to relearn some things. I've had to relearn my management and, and how I go about that and, you know, my communication with parents and, you know, just the way that I do things um, coming from that low income, very low parent involvement now to very, very high wealthy income uh, families and, and parent involvement to the max. I've had to really, really relearn stuff and it's been an interesting adjustment for me. I'm not saying I like either over the other. Um, like I said, they both have pros and cons, but very, very, very different culture and you do do things um, very differently and, and go about teaching the children um, and learning about the children very differently in, in those two different um, environments. I've seen the depths of it and I've seen the heights of it. So moving on to the, the, to the next question is, is dealing with uh, sort of respect and advancement. So my question specifically is, is that uh, teachers uh, in general, if you look at the news, it says teachers are underpaid and there's definitely moves and all that stuff out there about how teachers are not paid enough 
and how people are now teaching their kids at home and they're like, oh, I appreciate the teacher. But then people don't necessarily understand how to pay them because you don't know how to monetize a thing that doesn't create a profit. But in the same breath, uh, when I talked with the gentleman, they said, well, the, the, because teachers, and in my opinion, teaching is kind of terminal, the only true way to get advancement is by changing and moving out of the classroom, which uh, obviously some people know on a firsthand basis. So my question would be is, in terms of respect, do you think teachers are paid correctly or could they be paid more? And then what would be the reasoning why? And also as far as advancement, is there really an ability to be advanced as a teacher? And so the order I'll go in is Anna, Courtney, Jenna, and then Judy. Um, well, my honest opinion is no, we are not paid on what we do. Um, but as a lot of us know, most we don't go into this job to be paid um, for the money. Um, you know, um, when I several years ago, I was in Australia for the summer for three weeks, and we had the opportunity to go into a school, and the teachers there were talking to us and they were telling us you know about how they're paid and stuff like that and they ended up telling us that they're paid three times more than we are you know and i'm thinking why does our society not respect us as teachers no matter man or woman um why do they not respect us like that um you know so it's been kind of a um you know like a not battle but a conversation between what is the right pay and why um, you know we've had days in, here in North Carolina that the NCAE marched for um, you know higher pay and things like that um, I honestly I do think we should be paid more but I think we should be respected more as well mm. um, so you know I don't I don't know that that's kind of a sticky conversation question um you know i don't want to get into a whole lot but you know as a whole i do feel like like we should be paid more because we do there's a lot that we deal with that um comes with the territory of what we do but it should not be put on us as teachers to do those things does that make sense? It makes total sense because the thing about it is it's very political and, and Judy probably will have a really, really good uh, take on it, even though she's going to go last, but she probably has a really good take on it, sort of seeing it from the administrative side. Uh, and what about advancement? Because I know you were a facilitator. I know Courtney was a facilitator. So what about advancement? Do you see that? Because what I see is advancement is that you have to exit the classroom to actually advance. So I'll let you answer that and then I'll have Courtney follow. Well, yeah. Um, I, I do agree with that because when I did leave the classroom, I left for three years. Um, I was an instructional technology facilitator and then I had my little girl and um, I wanted to go back into the classroom. Um, but it is very political. Um, you know, I was paid more. Um, I did more work. Um, but I, I think that teachers we should not have to worry about 
oh, I'm only going to get a raise if I go into a county level position or administrative position. You know, I'm good at what I do. I know I'm good at what I do. So I should be, you know, I should be paid for that. I should be paid for what I do. Um, you know, so unfortunately, it does take advancement in our profession um, to be able to, to get a raise. Okay, and Courtney? Um, yeah, I, honestly, how do you put a, a price or a value on, on people raising? Um, <laughs> like that, like, geez Louise, we, I mean, our profession, we are molding society. How our society acts, how we respond to things, meaning like, you know, our critical thinking process, how we decide on things. Like we are the people that make that happen. I don't really know if, <laughs> I don't really know if there is a dollar amount that can be put on that, to be honest with you. I do find it funny. Um, I've seen several times on um, Facebook where somebody was like, you want to pay teachers uh, the amount that they're worth? Like, let you, you pay for example, on teachers, babysitters by any stretch of the imagination, um, a babysitter might be this hour, then, you know, multiply it by this many hours and all of these different things and aim to be like $300,000 a year for that teacher. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, <laughs> but I would just say like, in my head, like, I, yes, definitely teachers deserve so much more because we work hard to make sure that we are creating a society that can function well. Um, to the end about um, advancement and, you know, having to leave the classroom in order to see some kind of raise, I will say this, I have been very proud. I work for Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools and I am very proud of um, some ways that um, our district has uh, thought about how to repurpose funds to um, to compensate teachers. So we um, work with um, opportunity um, opportunity culture, and it's essentially an organization that uh, works with uh, district leaders and building level principals um, to you know see within your staff who are your teacher leaders and um, how can we use positions and allocate um, the positions that are given to you um, so that you can maybe create a teacher leader that is, um, Judy talked about ADMs, be 1.5. So essentially that person um, could, uh, Essentially, their pay is, you know, teacher salary, but then they are also, um, because it's taking maybe a half of another position, they are getting $20,000 extra. And that position does not take you out of the classroom. You work with other teachers as like a PLC lead, but you are also teaching your own class. So I like how they have rethought that so that people still can do what they love and still serve children, but also really impact adults and therefore have a greater impact on the amount of students that are just getting good instruction. So I've been appreciative for that. I appreciate that uh, the sermon and the collection plate is coming. Okay, so Jenna, uh, your turn. Yeah, so um, kind of like Anna was saying, this is a sticky subject, you know, forever. But I definitely do think teachers should be paid more. Um, but I think that uh, in hand comes with respect. I think 
a lot of people who make the decisions about um, what teachers are paid have have never been in a classroom, have never had 18 to 30 children in front of them with all different types of needs. Um, they don't know the hours that we put in behind the scenes. My pay hours are 8.45 a.m. to 4.15 p.m. And no joke, every single day I am in the building much earlier than 8.45 and much later than 4.15. I work on the weekends and, and I'm not getting paid for any of that now. I don't mind doing it because I'm passionate about what I do. But sometimes I sit there and think, what other job? I mean, my mom's a nurse. She goes to work. She does her job. She comes home. It's done. She doesn't have to come home and do paperwork and think about her patients and do this and do that. Um, teachers do. Um, and kind of thinking about, about that respect and why. Um, you know, you were talking about, Lou, how there's no, no physical um, products being made. Um, I was thinking about that as well. These high paying jobs, doctors, you know, people think, oh gosh, what would we do without a doctor? Well, you'll die probably, <laughs> you know, but all oh, so many people don't think about what in the world would you do without teachers? Okay, well, here's the thing. Without teachers, you don't have doctors. Without teachers, you don't have engineers because they can't read, they can't write, they can't do math. It's such an important job and people don't realize the products that we are producing because it's not tangible, you know, and not only are we producing uh, people that can be academically advanced in society, but we are producing good citizens, you know. Uh, we are with our our students, I almost called them children because that's what they are to me. We are with our students more waking hours than their parents are. I am a firm believer that we teach them just as much, if not more, about being good humans than their parents do. Um, we have such an influence, and it's not just a pay thing, it's a respect thing. So many people don't really open their eyes and think about what we do, how hard we work, how much we work, um, the things that are thrown at us. Uh, we're being pulled in 18 different directions all day, every day. We have meetings, we have children with different needs, we have um, to meet criteria of the county. It's, it's a job. Um, but like Anna said, everyone, every educator knows you don't go into education for the money. Um, and that's what I think about, about that. I, I just uh, that the people who are making decisions about teacher pay would go be a teacher for a year. And I think maybe they would change their mind. All right, and Judy? Well, I don't think you can, I don't think you can separate the, the respect part from the pay part. And, and I think that's a cultural issue, really like the, and, and you can look at that when we're talking about culture in the, in the last question, but you, you look at different cultures in different countries and the pay is consistent with how the culture of that, that country or that, that group sees their educators. And the, the bottom line here is for whatever reason, which may get back to the very first question that you asked about, you know, a hundred years ago, the shift from men being teachers to women being teachers, it, it may be um, grounded in that, it may not, but the bottom line is that education is just not, um, for whatever reason, respected on the whole, um, like other professions, like doctors, lawyers, engineers, like whatever they happen to be. And I think that's why those kind of go hand in hand. We probably all had the same experience in college. At least I did because I was going through college as an education major. And you know, those one of the three questions they always ask you, hey, where are you from? Like, what's your major? Whatever, when you say your major, and I would say, oh, I'm history education. And the first question I always got was why? You know, like, why do you want to do that? Like, you can do so much else. Like, and, and until that changes, I don't know that any of the rest of it's going to change because I also don't think people really understand 
what it is that a teacher is required and or asked to do, especially when every new thing that comes out from whichever legislature in the 50 states wants to send it out. Um, the number of things that we're expected to teach outside of the standard course of study, um, it just, it grows exponentially every day. And we, we were having this conversation a little earlier. We were laughing about it and you were, were recording this podcast in the middle of this, the, the COVID issue. So we're all sitting at home. I'm, I, I can add running a virtuals to my, to my resume at this point, because that's what I'm doing. But one of the things that we were, we were laughing about is the, the number of memes that are just like flooded for parents who are like, on that. <laughs> like, and maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe they understand, or maybe they're getting a glimpse um, from this side of, of it is that that teachers expected to do or what they do all day long. Because I think definitely well, some of our parents are getting worn out having to be teachers at home. Um, and I don't know if that if that will stick. I think some things that come out of this whole isolation thing that stick and maybe change us as a culture a bit going forward. I don't know if that'll be one of them or another or, or not. But I hope that people seeing from the trenches what it is that teachers are doing now sticks in a way that maybe some of that respect changes moving forward, and that's a hope. All right, so uh, you all have, I mean, I, I could have a million more questions because you all have answered with, with such breadth that it, it's, it's amazing. And so uh, I, I've titled and I've named the podcast Voices because I wanna highlight the voices of people I know that do very, very amazing things. And I think you all are not only doing amazing things, but you're amazing people. I thank you for being a part of the show. And so what I like to do as the final word is leave the final word to the guests and the contributors, because you are indeed contributors. And uh, because of that, uh, you can talk about anything you want to talk about. It can be about what we've been talking about for this, this episode or about anything that's on your heart. But with that, I, I will say, and I'll give you the order. Uh, thank you so much for participating, ladies. You are the reason why there's continued hope in the future of education. And so we will go in the order of uh, Judy, Jenna, Courtney, and Anna. But again, ladies, thank you. And I look forward to hearing what you have to say next. Well, thanks, Lou, for having me. I really appreciate it. And it was so good to catch up with everyone else. To, to everyone, I'm just gonna say, you know, take a take a minute and pause when you're um, um, when you're thinking about your your teachers and your your children's teachers at school and you know we spend a lot of time um even on like uh even on um like TripAdvisor or something like that like we're, we're real quick to throw out a negative review on google and and keep the good things to ourselves and, and not really talk about those at parties if you have a great teacher and your student has a great teacher tell them tell them don't just hold back the and and talk about people and talk about things when you're upset or when you have a concern or whatever there are so many teachers doing so many amazing things that just never hear it because people don't think to say you know what i should probably tell them that they're awesome and my kid loves them and i'm so glad they were my kid's teacher so i i hope everybody listening takes one minute to figure out something great to say just to prop up the teacher that's teaching their kid awesome and jenna yeah, Lou, thanks for having me. It's been really good to catch up with um, people that I haven't spoke with in forever. Um, but I guess just the last thing I'm going to say, since I'm such a new educator and, you know, as Judy was saying, I switched my major from nursing to education. And the question I always got was why, even from some past educators that I had, um, some past teachers had texted me and say, why are you doing that? Don't do that. It's not worth it. If you want to become an educator, if you're passionate about children, if you're passionate about making a difference, 
do it. Um, it's a tough job. It's a, it can be a sad job. It can be a job that makes you mad, frustrated. Um, it can be a job that you might want to quit every single week, but, um, with all those negative, negative things, negative sides of being an educator are so, so, so many more positive things. Um, it really takes a special person to be a teacher. Um, and if you are thinking about being an educator, if you are an education major, if you are in your first years of education, stick to it, stay strong, think about the positives, like Judy was saying, um, the negatives are there, they do present themselves, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's the truth, stick to it, um, stay strong, and always do your best, always put on that bright face, because there are so, so many children um, that need us educators. Thank you very much. Courtney? Um, just to say what others have said, so glad to be a part of this. So thank you for making this happen, sir. But um, I would just say um, this is probably one of the most amazing professions ever. And I truly believe that just because we have the opportunity to impact the life of somebody else. Um, and it's not just someone else's life. Um, we get to impact communities of people. Um, so uh, sometimes we wonder, how can I make an impact on the world? It's just like that. You impact a student, which means you impact their family, and then that family knows other families. So um, if there's ever any doubt about whether or not you should go into education, we've all made it very plain and clear that yes, it is a hard job, but at the same time, it's a job that um, is full of benefits and you reap a lot of uh, a lot more than what uh, you give out to students because you grow as an individual. So um, no matter where you are in your educational journey, hang on and uh, keep the faith because uh, you are making a difference in this society. Thank you so much, and Anna. Um, I'd first like to say thank you for asking me to participate. Um, it was a pleasure to um, kind of talk with you guys and. Um, to hear from Judy, which I worked for, and you, Lewis, which I worked with, and then Jenna was one of my students, but um, if I can tell anyone um, that, you know, is thinking about education, that it's in education, to also just stick with it, and think about down the road, um, you know, the the rewards that you're going to get. There's nothing better than walking through the parking lot of a shopping center and hearing former students yell out, of their car windows at you and asking you how you're doing and how your family is doing. So it is a rewarding profession. Um, it, it just, it does warm your heart when you truly um, think about what you're doing for our society. 